0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Ian Rowe. Ian is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the founder of Vertex Partnership Academies. He's also an educator who ran a charter school called Public Prep in the South Bronx for many years. In this episode, we discuss his new book, Agency. We talk about the obstacles that face low-income Black and Hispanic kids at the schools that Ian teaches in. We discuss the problems with the narratives handed to these kids by both the left and the right, what Ian calls the the blame-the-system mindset and the the blame-the-victim mindset, respectively. We talk about the challenges faced by charter schools in general and the political opposition they face. We talk about the role of religion and upward mobility, and much more. So without further ado, Ian Rowe. Okay, Ian Rowe. Thanks so much for coming on
1: my show. Hey, man. It's good to see you. It's uh, I've been looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, I have for a while too. And we're going to talk about your great and necessary book called Agency, which came out a few months ago. But before we do, I want to give my listeners who may or may not be familiar with you, some of them may have Heard you on the Glenn show, I think you've been on. Yeah, I have. Right. And in other places. But if they haven't caught you, can you just give a little summary of who you are, maybe starting with where you grew up and how you came to work in charter schools and to think about all the issues you think about, including systemic racism versus individual responsibility and agency in general? How'd you come to be what I view as kind of an authority on this
1: subject? Wow. Well, uh, what's my origin story? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, man. What led me to this place, I think for a lot of people, I a similar beginning, it's just my parents who were from Jamaica West Indies, you know, shaped my worldview. They came to the United States in the mid-1960s, crazy time in our country, lots of racial strife. So they came, you know, eyes wide open in terms of what they were going to experience in this country. But they felt that the country was changing, that there was still opportunity in the United States for a Black family. And we moved to Brooklyn, moved on to Queens. I I remember my dad, he was always kind of fascinated at the role of race in our country. I may have shared this with you once before, but, you know, when he always used to tell me and my brother, when he was in Jamaica, he was a man, that he was just a man. It wasn't until he came to Mm. the United States that he realized he was a Black man and that there was all Mm -hmm. this weight placed around race. And he really, in many ways, tried to liberate us from that weight, this kind of onus of what it meant to be Black. And so a lot of emphasis on education, a lot of emphasis on family, a lot of emphasis on faith and our ability to succeed, even in the face of barriers. It wasn't that the barriers didn't exist. It was just that you weren't helpless. You know, you had agency, even though he never used that term, or my Parents never used that term. It was just the sense of, yeah, life is going to throw you challenges, but there's a pathway. And I can share one story that I do put in the book that might be helpful in sort of my epiphany moment with my own parents, if you mm. may, if that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we first came to the United States, we were in Brooklyn and then ultimately we moved on up to Queens, to this little town, mm. Laurelton, Queens, which was um, predominantly Jewish and Italian, you know, predominantly white. There were more black families moving in. And unfortunately that led to a bunch of racial incidents. And in my junior high school became kind of the epicenter Of a lot of conflict. And the the local school board, they decided to solve that problem by just creating an annex, a separate junior high school in Rosedale, Queens, which was a few miles over, but in a more predominantly white part of town. And what most of the white parents decided to do that were in my school, they took their white kids and sent them to the annex, leaving junior high school 231, my school, as a segregated, virtually all black school. And my parents, you know, who had come to the United States to live the American dream on the assumption that where the white kids go, that's where the better education's got to go. They were going to, they were going to transfer me too. And, um, and you know, this was the moment that I did the unthinkable. It was a Sunday night. My parents, we were in our, you know, our living room. My dad was in his, you know, sofa, like his you know, Archie Bunker sofa. i mean the recliner and my mom was on the sofa and, um, I begged my parents to stay. You know, I, I begged my, it like, why does the education at this other school just have to be better just because everyone that's going to be left in my school is black, right? And like, why it doesn't, I, you know, I promise I work hard. I love my teachers. I love my classmates. Like, even though some of my favorite classmates were leaving, I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. You know, and I'd never challenged my parents on anything of substance, right? Because my parents mm. would crawl through broken glass for us I and mean, they'd come to this country and, um. But something didn't feel right about this moment. So I Mm -hmm. begged, I pleaded, I cried. I mean, it's one of these moments you remember, Mm -hmm. you know, I was 12 and um, and my parents acquiesced. They said, okay. I mean, it was the first time that I'd ever asked my parents to do something that they clearly did not want to do. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I felt like, holy crap. (laughs) They, They just said yes. So I felt a greater sense of responsibility. And even though I would never have called it then, I think that was my first experience of this thing called agency, that I felt so invested in that moment that I had ownership, like I had skin in the game. And so it was also for me this feeling that regardless of the makeup of any kind of institution, the fact that it was going to be an all-black school, why did that mean just inherently that meant it was going to be worse? or that it was somehow going to be inferior, or I was going to have to get a worse education. So in addition to my own personal experience of like, wow, I have ownership, I influenced what my destiny will be. It also influenced just my thinking, I know it's connected to how I believe schools today. Like, so what? I don't have white kids in my schools. So does that mean I have to wait for a movement of white kids to show up before the, the quality of education can be exceptional? So that's probably my first experience with I don't know, that liberating feeling of ownership, even though nothing's guaranteed. I mean, my parents, in a way, were right that the school turned out, ultimately turned out to become one of the most violent schools in New York City. And it's now Mm -hmm. like multiple charter schools are in that same building. So, on one level, they were right of what they feared it would become. But in that moment, they gave me a sense of self determination that I had never felt before.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you can so easily see it from both your point of view and from your parents' point of view. I mean, your parents ultimately had an intuition that ended up being right, presumably after you'd already left the school, thankfully. But you as a 12-year-old understandably didn't want to go to a school in another part of town for reasons that didn't seem really logical or necessary. And leave all your friends or leave some of your friends. Is it interesting to, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just
1: about to say, I actually did understand the logic of what they were saying because mm-hmm. I had everyone around me basically saying that's where the white kids are going. So, mm-hmm. so I understood the logic, but it didn't feel right. You know, it just didn't, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. why? You know, they were speaking in certitudes, the people that were saying this, including my parents. And I had doubts and I knew that- right my effort played a role in what the outcome would be. So why are you doubting me in a sense of trying to extract what could be a great education? So, you know, and these are heady things for a 12 year old. I, I mean, I didn't know all what was going on at that time. It just didn't feel right. And again, you know, my parents had used to tell us stories about when they decided to come to America, when my dad, you know, my dad wrote, because he had moved to London after they had starting in Jamaica. He used to pick her up on horseback and these romantic dates. But he wrote to her parents from London. He wrote to her parents in Jamaica for her hand in marriage, right? And um, lots of consternation. And then she made this decision to take a 5,000 mile boat ride to go meet her man in London. And they got married there and they had brother and I there. But sometimes I think the reason that they ultimately made decided to let me stay in the school, because there is a moment that they experienced in their own lives where they, in a sense, challenged their parents or they felt there was something important enough to make this radical step that was not necessarily in line with what, in the case of my mom, what her parents wanted, but they ultimately decided, you you know, you've got to go off in search of this dream.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to contrast your story with my story as also like an 11-year-old, I think, where my mom pulled me out of the public school system in my town and sent me to a private school at that age, which I didn't want to do, probably for many of the same reasons you didn't want to. But you know, I just wasn't the kind of kid in that moment to take a stand and and to make a, a challenge. So I went along with it and i think it ended up being a good decision for me but the rationale in so far as i understand it f- from my mom especially was that the public school in in our town was something like 25% black I and mean, it was a you know big town lots of kids and every year the graduating senior class at the high school would have a couple hundred kids in the honor honors program and you would see kids there represented from every intersection of race and gender, except for black boys mm-hmm. in, in particular. Yeah. So you would see, you know, white girls, white boys, Asian girls, Asian boys, black girls. But you would just see, you know, maybe one or two in a group of several hundred black boys that ended up graduating with honors. And, and so both my sisters ended up going to that high school and, and doing very well. But I think my mom had an intuition that I shouldn't go to that school. And um like I said it didn't make me happy at the time but I think in retrospect it was a good decision because being a black boy that was nerdy and got straight A's I think would have been more socially difficult had I gone to that school not to say impossible by any means not to say there wouldn't have been value going there but my sense is it would have just been harder to be who I was and excel academically and be on the nerdier end of the spectrum and also you know, not get picked on and, yeah. and the rest. So but do
1: you think that the reason you didn't see black boys in that high school graduation in the honors is because most of them were nerdy? Like, what do you think was contributing to that?
0: My sense is that there was a specific pressure, social pressure on black boys in particular, not to conspicuously excel at academics mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm and that it didn't affect black girls in quite the same way, that it was easier for a black girl to be a straight A student and still be perceived as cool. Whereas that was harder for black boys. I mean, that's the only way that I can make sense of it, given that all the black girls and black boys are coming from the same families, yeah. living in the same town. Yeah. So, yeah, which is not to say I would have, that culture, that peer pressure would have been an insurmountable barrier. But I think that must have been the intuition my mom was acting on. I, I she, she's not around for me to ask her, but that's what I sense. I mean, an alternative explanation, and this gets into directly into the meat of your book, is that the system, the school, the town was penalizing and holding back black boys in, in a particular way that it wasn't quite doing black girls. Okay. So, so let's get into this. And this is a proxy for a million different arguments happening in America that have been happening for many, many decades and show no signs of stopping between what you call in your book, the blame the system mindset and the blame the victim mindset. So can you briefly define what you mean
1: by these two phrases? Yeah. So, you know, I didn't talk a lot about my background when I just introduced myself, but you know, for the last ten years I've run a network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. Before that, I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Before that, I was at MTV for six years, trying to mobilize, you know, tens of millions of young people across the country to take action on issues of importance. Before that, I was at Teach for America, you know, and I've been mentoring the school. So I've had an amazing experience where I've I've tried to really understand what are the factors that really drive young people to be successful or not you know the factors that help young people realize that they have agency that they have they have the ability to lead a self-determined life and what I've really noticed especially in the last few years is that there are these dominant narratives emerging that in my view are cutting young people off at the knees in terms of like what are the decisions heading into sort of young adulthood that give me the best shot at success like do i have control or do i at least have enough sense of what i can control to lead me to make good decisions and this blame the system and blame the victim meta narratives i think are getting in the way blame the system i describe as a view of america that if you're not achieving the american dream then it's because america itself is flawed at the core right? It's inherently racist. It's oppressive, oppressive based on skin color, gender, class. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking in every corner. Capitalism is evil. You know, the systems are rigged against you, bottom line. And they're so rigged against you, so discriminatory that you have no power to individually overcome. You've got to rely on something like reparations if you're Black or some other societal transformation to pull you out of this like overwhelming victimization that the system creates. But on the other side, I call it blame the victim. So again, if you're not successful, it's not it's not because America's the problem. America's great, America's the land of opportunity. No, you're successful because you're the problem, right? You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You have not done the things that you were supposed to do when all this opportunity came your way. You were the architect of your own failure. And the problem with that narrative is that it ignores what happens, and I see this all the time in the schools that I lead, that if you're a young person potentially born into an unstable family, if you don't have access to a strong faith commitment, and the benefits that can come from that, if you don't have access to school choice, well, it's really hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't have any of those kind of institutional supports that are so critical. So to me, blame the victim and blame the system add up to a singular lie which is an increasingly, and by the way, telling kids of all races, all classes, that something is standing in your way. Like you've got to play a certain role. Like if you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're black, you're oppressed. Like everyone's locked into these roles that you're just supposed to follow. And heaven forbid you try to express an opinion that differs mm-hmm. from these dominant views. And so rather than just shout in the rain, I mean, I try to make what I do my work is always trying to not just complain and whine and like, you know, love a problem, you know, but what's the empowering alternative? What's the solution that I can put forth? So when I started writing agency, you know, it's interesting. I was only going to write about family as the key, but it really, I just became clear to me that we needed more of a framework of this and a new definition of what I call agency, which I define as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So acknowledging that we all have power, we all as human beings, we have the power to make decisions, but there's lots of people with free will that do some pretty terrible things. So moral discernment, and we can talk about it. So think of agency like a vector or velocity, where velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So if we all have free will, where does the ability to become morally discerning come from? And that's my framework, free, family, religion, education and entrepreneurship.
0: So we'll get into that, but let's dig into these blame the system and blame the victim mentalities one at a time, taking the first one first. So what's wrong with blame the system mindset? Isn't it true that the cops are more likely to pull you over if you're black, everything else held equal? at the margin. Isn't it true that black sounding name will is less likely to get a call back in an interview if or, or on a cold email? Aren't there a list of things like this w- which represent real disadvantages? And wouldn't it be smart to let kids know that this is out there, that racism is real and Isn't that a crucial part of education? This is what someone might say. What's wrong with telling people that the system is rigged
1: against them if in fact it is? Right. Not only do some people say that, a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people say it. Unfortunately, people who stand in front of kids all day, they tell them that all the time over and over and over and over again. You know, there's a well-known New York Times author, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, was the lead author of the New York Times 1619 Project. And of course, the 1619 Project is very much of this ideology that America is racist to the core. It's anti-Black racism running in the very DNA of the country. The founding principles were false when they were written. So they're, they're all about blame the system. But Nicole Hannah-Jones, in a separate essay called What We Are Owed, is his treatise to yeah, reparations being the only solution for black people. And she writes, it doesn't matter what a black person does, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things, quote, can overcome four hundred years of racialized plundering, end quote. And there are a lot of people who embrace that worldview. Now, <laughs> mind you, Nicole Hannah-Jones has done All of those things, all four of those things in her own life, and good for her to lead a prosperous life. But there is a huge dichotomy when you hear a message that basically tells you that you're helpless. When you look at life through a certain prism, you'll say, well, there are these disparities. I mean, yeah, there are more Black people percentage wise killed or whatever in a certain category. But then you have got to dissect the information, right? So let's take one example the racial wealth gap, because when you could argue, that the racial wealth gap is vibrant proof of systemic discrimination. Based on the 2019 survey of consumer finances, the average white family has about $160,000 more wealth than the average black family. There it is, boom, mic drop, done, that's the proof. Like, okay, that's a true disparity, that's real. The question is what is going on beneath those numbers, right? Because if you just take into account two other factors, family structure and education, the average Black married, college-educated family has about $160,000 more wealth than the average white, single-parent family. So what does that mean? Does that disprove that there's systemic discrimination? No, not necessarily. But what it does say is that there are factors beyond race, that maybe make a difference in what you as an individual have the ability to achieve. So when you say what's wrong with telling a kid that discrimination exists, sure, I like to say there's systemic discrimination, there's, there's structural racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. But you know what? There's also surmountable racism. And I don't say that euphemistically. I say it because there are millions and millions and millions of Black people that are doing great in our country for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can talk about. And there by the way, there are also millions and millions and millions of white people that are not doing well. And maybe we should widen our aperture beyond race as the dominant factor that we think is so explanatory, for all these conditions. So the blame the system ideology just falls down because there are innumerable examples of people who are supposed to be succumbing to the oppression of the system, and yet they're flourishing. And they're not just flourishing randomly, they're flourishing because there seem to be common ingredients to the kinds of attitudes, behaviors, and institutions that they embrace. And so for me, mm-hmm. I'm always countering. Not the non-existence of systemic barriers, but I am countering this idea that there aren't things that one can do to overcome them. Right. I certainly grew up with
0: the attitude that I knew racists were out there and racism exists, but that it was far less than it was in the past. And that if you were motivated and, you know, checked all the boxes that someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones pretends aren't important, graduating high school, graduating college, not having kids before you're married, you know, all all the things that that everyone, almost everyone knows are important, whether or not they actually say that in their essays. <laughs> you know, the understanding was if you do those things in the late 20th and early 21st century, there are going to be numerous avenues available to you. If you have a little, you know, a little bit of talent and a lot of effort as a black person in America, that was obvious to me. And that was compatible with the truth that there is still some racial discrimination, right? Out there. It was never told to me in such a way that would discourage my effort. I think my dad described it this way. I mean, there's this old black adage, which is a black American adage, which is you work twice as hard to get half as far. And that was probably no doubt true in in my grandfather's generation. But I think my dad once quipped that um, saying you work twice as hard to get half as far is basically you telling me that my return on investment is half what a white person's is. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> am I going to invest more or less if that's true? Right? Like if, if, if the return on my effort is half what a white person's is in the mainstream corridors of society, which is to say high school, a college, getting a job, et cetera, that suddenly makes... You know the the criminal underworld a lot more attractive <laughs> by comparison. If if you're, if you're telling me I'm just you know, I'm, I'm going to get half half my return on this, and I mean I I see the the logic of of his quip there. I've kind of hoped that a lot of the kids that you would be in charge of in the South Bronx as a head of a charter school, low income black and Latino students. I kind of hope that because so much of the woke systemic racism, moral panic is occurring in the elite spheres among people who read the New York Times and people who are in the Ivy Leagues and major corporations. I hope that a lot of that messaging would actually miss kids, lower income kids. And I'm curious if that's been your experience because like, you know, do the kids that go to the, Charter schools in the South Bronx. Do they know who Nicole Nicole Hannah Jones is? <laughs> I, I don't think so. Right. I, I don't think they're reading no. how to be an anti-racist by Eva Well, Kendi.
1: well, I wouldn't go that so, far. I wouldn't go that far. They don't
0: know. No. So I'm I'm asking the question. Yeah. What's your experience on that? Yeah.
1: So it's very interesting. I mean, you're right in that you know, predominantly suburb suburbs have become overrun with woke ideology and dealing with white guilt and all that kind of nonsense. Um, and, and it is also true that in my 10 plus years running charter schools, I've never had parents, you know, we had our network had more than 2000 students, kindergarten through eighth grade and nearly 5000 families on the wait list. Right. So we were, you know, in the we were are in demand. And I never had a parent come to me and say, please, Mr. Rowe, you know, ensure that the curriculum teaches our my children how oppressed they are and how, you know, <laughs> how the system is rigged against them. So that did not happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, though, woke ideology has seeped its way into many ch- schools, including charter schools. I mean, probably a vibrant example is something I do include in the book, which is, you know, the KIPP College Network, which is, you know, KIPP K-12, to which is an amazing charter school network. They've been around 25 years now. And for decades, they had this slogan called, Work hard, be nice. In four words. Sounds pretty racist <laughs> to me. Well, for four, you know, for 20 plus years, that was the animating idea behind this, you know, your effort matters and your character matters, right? And mm-hmm. they have whole treatises from students and faculty who said that those four words like, were like the North Star that really drove them to continue to succeed regardless of circumstance. But in the aftermath of George Floyd, you know, the leadership of KIPP, you know, people who I know and deeply respect said, you know what? We can't have that slogan anymore. We have to renounce that slogan. Work hard, be nice. Just like you say, well, actually, you know what? Meritocracy, quote, meritocracy is an illusion, end quote. So wait, 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 what happened? To, what happened to, you know, work hard or your effort matters? Now, you know, these systems. And so we're at a reckoning, we're at a point of reckoning within the charter sector and throughout much of K 12 public education, public education, that students may not know Nicole Hannah-Jones, but many of the schools are adopting How to Be an Anti-Racist or Robin DeAngelo's book as part of the professional development for teachers who are now starting to get the idea that to work out their academic expectations, they have to take into account these marginalized identities of their students. And once you start going down that road, particularly in K-12 education, where you start looking at kids, not just as individuals, but as the avatar of some marginalized groups, all sorts of bad things start to happen. You start to reduce expectations. Mm-hmm. When the governor of Oregon just created a law that says, we no longer need high school students. To demonstrate proficiency in math or reading to graduate from high school. And why? Because we're doing this for our kids of color. We're doing this because, you know, to achieve equity. It's like a downward spiral. So I am very much, and I'm not the only one, but I think there is a deep fear that we have to counter this worldview. So when you think of kids in the heart of the South Bronx, no, not a single parent ever has asked to ensure that their kids know about white power. They wanna know about the strategies to overcome whatever white power their kids will experience. Mm -hmm. But the administrations of these schools, the leadership, there's a lot of sort of virtue signaling and woke ideology that we have to counter.
0: I'm recalling now when I spoke at, I was on a panel at one of your charter schools in the South Bronx years Mm -hmm. ago maybe probably something like four years ago. And we were talking about different ideas related to all this. And I remember the one thing I said that got applause from the audience, which was parents of kids at the charter school. The one thing I said that got applause, I recall, was about this notion of acting white. There's something white about doing well in school and how absurd that notion is. That struck a very deep chord with the people there. And I remember this is actually something my mom used to say my mom was from the South Bronx, and I remember when the Weird Al Yankovic song "White and Nerdy" <laughs> came out, which was a parody of "Ride and Dirty" right. by Chameleon Air. is like a hilarious parody. My mom didn't like it because she was offended by the idea that you'd have to be white to be nerdy, or that mm-hmm. there's something white about nerdiness. And so, you know, that was. And yet, you know, I, I've heard aunts make fun of how nerdy a child she was when they were in the South Bronx she was like going to the library in the heart of the South Bronx when the quote unquote Bronx was burning and she was known as that kind of a kid but it seemed to me and that there was a deep hunger among these parents and these families for for exactly what you're describing with this eight which is agency right like this the notion that we can control the outcomes in our lives yep. And I do think that's something that the sort of blame the system crowd, that's something that they get wrong about the people they think. Oh my gosh,
1: this is a fundamental point that you're raising.
0: In the same way, by the way, in the same way that the defund the police crowd is very deeply out of touch with the desires of
1: Americans of color in high crime communities. Totally. I mean, these sort of self anointed gatekeepers, they know what's best for these families, like heaven forbid, police would be defunded in the communities where they live, right? But, you know, let's, you know, where these low-income communities, they don't need that. I mean, in the district, when you came to visit, that was in District 8 in the South Bronx, right on Grand Concourse. Mm -hmm. That was our all-boys school. And in 2015, of the 2,000 or so students that started ninth grade, at the various high schools within that district. Four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, right? That means 98% of those kids started ninth grade and either dropped out or four years later, they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math or reading without remediation. The parents who are coming to our schools don't want to want their kids to fall into that same set of statistics. They want Mm -hmm. answers. They want solutions. They want people that believe in their kids and are and not going to have them, you know, wallow in this kind of victimhood mentality. I mean, I'll share with you one of the toughest moments I had as a leader was right after George Floyd, right? After George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll share this, that, that you know, the school had a an information session where they, all the kids were brought into a Zoom session. Because, you know, it was obviously COVID and all that. and. You know, we'd never done anything like that before. I mean, you know, our school, you know, our boys won spelling bee championships and math things. It was all, you know, celebration. It was the first time the entire community came together and it was all about, I mean, it was one, it was trying to be reassuring that, you know, we're an institution that has your back. It also was just this feeling of, it wasn't that you should fear the police, but it was just this sense of, this is something for us to really fear. And that we just have to balance what we're telling to kids. And our parents, many of them may have faced, they may have had negative experiences of their education themselves or may have had negative interactions with the police. but fundamentally, the American Dream is still what they want for their kids. And they chose our schools because they believed that that's what we would be delivering. And, I, and that's what I believe a lot of parents are seeking. And my fear today is that the pendulum, is swinging too far to the side, particularly for black kids, but truthfully for a lot of kids of all races, that they are in a country that's not designed for their well-being and that somehow they're behind the eight ball and they've got to wait for somebody else to solve this problem.
0: Okay. So that covers some of the problems with the blame the system mindset. What's wrong with the blame the victim mindset? And to, to put that more into words, all you have in this life is yourself and your effort. And tough love is the way to go. We have to hold everyone to the same standards. And what that means is if you end up in prison because you committed a crime, well, so be it. You chose to commit that crime. You chose to get someone pregnant at 16 years old and I didn't. And that accounts for the difference between my life and yours. And uh, what is wrong with that simple common
1: sense mindset? Well, first of all, part of that is true. I mean, you do ultimately have to be responsible for your actions. There's no doubt about it. You know, I wrote agency, particularly designed for young people 24 and under, like 12 to 24, middle school, high school, and your first few years of either college or young young adulthood, because that 12 year span is when you are making the kinds of decisions that have lifelong implications, right? And it doesn't mean that if you, you can never recover from those decisions, but if we can get young people the information and supports they need during that period of time, it's also when brain development's occurring in a whole new way, we can usher in, in my view, a new age of agency. So the reason the blame the victim ideology is screwed up is that, you know, there's some legitimacy in it, right? But if a kid doesn't have access to these institutions, I say agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have access to a strong family, or if you grow up in the, you know, in district eight, where only 2% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. And the only school that you have access to is one of those schools that for generations has been operating that way. Why would you think that we're going to get better outcomes for this new generation? I mean, I did, a, did some congressional testimony a few months ago on like economic outcomes. These elected officials were obsessed with adults that weren't able to buy houses or they couldn't read a mortgage statement or, you know, they couldn't, you know, the, the, the wealth gap. Like, OK, those are all real problems. But if you're choosing to intersect when people are adults coming out of school systems for which they are not educated well, they're not reading well, they can't do math well, they can't read a mortgage statement, then why would you expect different outcomes? And so the the problem with blame the victim, it goes too far in stressing the element of personal responsibility. Like I'm with it, you know? But I think, and this is often my center right colleagues almost ignore, it's almost like the invisible help. You know, it's the it's the strength of your family. It's the support you get from your local faith community. It's the fact that you did Mm. have access to school choice, even if it wasn't policy. But those were things that shaped you and nurtured you. And we just can't ignore that. And I actually confess in the book that I was accused of blaming the victim because I spent so much time talking about the importance of family structure that I started getting attacked. I started to just step back and say, you know what, I need to acknowledge that side of my argument that says that not everything is systemic, but not everything is on the individual. There has to be this third way. And so that's why I define agency as free will plus. And that plus has got to come from local institutions that have great proximity to a kid. The family you form, personal faith commitment, if you so choose, access to a high quality education. And if you've got those three, this idea of entrepreneurship. So blame the victim is problematic because it doesn't acknowledge the necessity of local institutions that shape the moral fiber of the next generation.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think, um, how would I put this? People imagine the people that are taken in by this mindset, imagine that if you had put them in a completely different subculture and location, they still would have ended up exactly who they are. Right which is a total fiction. So like someone like me, for example, I grew up in a context with two parents that loved me and invested in me where most people I knew had two parents that loved and invested in them, which is almost equally important, where the majority of adults that I knew had gone to college, where I had a family member, I still have an uncle in prison, but Nobody else that I knew that I was around on a day-to-day level was a career criminal or would even think of becoming a career criminal. So what was normal to me was graduating high school, going to college, not having children out of wedlock, getting married and maybe having children. That was normal to me because it's what the great majority of people I was around of every race were doing. Now, if you put me... In a scenario where I knew zero people that had gone to college, I knew several people that were in and out of prison. I knew very few people that had two parents in a home. And that whole constellation of lifestyle choices, you could say they're choices because they are, but all of that just seemed far more normal to me than graduating high school, going to college, waiting till marriage to have a kid, right? That stuff would seem weird and strange and different. And as social creatures, we are deeply influenced by simply the pattern of what people around us are doing. And that has a self-perpetuating logic to it, right? You don't need a reason. Most people don't need a reason to do what everyone around them is doing. That comes naturally to us. It's actually how we're wired in, yeah. some, in some ways. But you do need to put in a lot of effort to do something different than what the people around you are doing. And so I think it's important for people who have these kinds of advantages that someone like myself does to think of something like, how hard would it have been for me not to graduate from high right. school? It would have actually required a lot of effort <laughs> yeah. and swimming upstream yeah. with my parents, with my friends, with my teachers, with everyone around me would have come down on me like a fucking thunderbolt right. if I had decided to drop out of high school. It would have required effort to do it. There are lots of people for whom the exact opposite is true. It, it requires effort actually to finish mm. at grade level, yep. as much effort as it would have required for me to drop out. And that's just a fact. Yep.
1: So when I started running schools in the South Bronx, this was 2010, I thought, you know, I just thought running great schools should be, should be enough. And, you know, we had great demand, we had huge wait lists on our schools, and we decided to move our headquarters from. Tribeca in Manhattan to 149th Street and 3rd Avenue in the South Bronx. And this was in 2016, where I had another epiphany moment, you know, July 11th, 2016, at about 4 p.m., we were doing a walking tour to get to know the neighborhood where we just moved. And as we were walking, we saw this 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck with all these people around it that were very excited that it was there. And as we got closer to the truck, we saw that in graffiti lettering, it said, who's your daddy? And like, what's that? And I did some research. It turns out the Who's Your Daddy truck is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between $350 and $500 to answer questions like, you know, are you my sister? Could you be my father? VH1 had a reality show. You know, this from my time at MTV when I'd done shows like 16 and Pregnant. VH1 had a reality show called Swab Stories on the truck because it was like entertainment because they were swabbing people to, you know, is Joey going to learn who his real father is, you know? And so this was entertainment. And yet here was this truck that was being celebrated in this community. And it was, this guy was an entrepreneur. It was like he had added another truck. His demand was so high, but not, as I learned the non-marital birth rate in this community was 85%. And so I just started to realize, gosh, for most of these kids, as much as a great education as we're providing, We have to address this somehow, because just to your point, if you don't see any models by which you can make a difference in your own life, it's just really hard. And so I started talking about this data that's called the success sequence. It says if you finish your high school degree, then get a full-time job of any kind, just you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if you have children, marriage first, 97% of people who follow that series of decisions, avoid poverty. And the vast majority enter the middle class or beyond. So we started teaching this and we got massive pushback. You can't teach that. Sure, that's data, but how do you actually make this real for kids who don't see that every day? And so that's mm-hmm. when I started mm-hmm. getting the whole blame the victim accusation. Yeah, you're, you're putting data out into the world, but you're not helping kids actually realize what each of these things mean. If you live in a neighborhood where that's everything you're seeing, yeah, that's a lot easier, but come down, make this, translate this for life in this part of town or in Appalachia or parts of Chicago, where you can say the data all you want, but if the kids aren't in an environment where they're seeing this, you have to make it real in some way. So I just want to echo the Mm -hmm. point that, and this is a lot to my center-right colleagues, we can talk about these things, but we have to figure out ways to make this real in the communities that we really want to serve.
0: So in your book, you highlight the problems with the blame, the system narrative, with the blame, the victim narrative, which we just did. And then you sketch a third
1: way. Can you describe that third way? Yeah. You know, you can't just shout in the rain. (laughs) You know, I mean, you have to put forth ideas that work in the real world. You know, that's why I run schools. You know, I want my kids know that they can do hard things. I want to run institutions that say, "Well, did it work? Your ideas." And so, kids need a framework, in my view, that shows them that they will face barriers, but there, there are strategies to overcome. They will face systemic barriers. So there is blame the system. I mean, you know, there are laws that ban school choice in New York City. That's a real systemic barrier, right? Mm-hmm. So, but they need a framework to understand how I can be successful while also knowing that there's, there's a framework. That they can take personal responsibility, but that they don't have to do it alone, and that there are institutions. So, for me, that framework is free family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. My hope is that free becomes a framework that young people can embrace that highlights their individual asset, the individual strengths that they can deploy, even in the face of identity groupings that are telling them all the things that they cannot do. So, free is family. It's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family that you form. R is about religion, personal faith commitment. E is about education. And in that, this whole idea of school choice is central. And then the last E is about entrepreneurship. If you form a strong family, have strong faith commitment, strong education through educational choice, you are much more likely to be an informed risk taker in your own life. And your ability to solve problems, whether it be your own work, building your own business, solving problems within your community, you have an entrepreneurial mindset. But that doesn't just come from nowhere. So what I'm trying to highlight is this idea that agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. That social empowerment has to come from the most local mediating institutions, from the environment. because So this isn't like, you know, a federal government top-down program. This is more about animating the local institutions within your neighborhood that help drive your ultimate success free. So I'm happy to go through each one in more detail.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get there. Before we get there, I want to linger on on a point you just passed over quickly, which was the opposition to charter schools. So charter schools... This is an area I've paid attention to and that you've been involved in for over a decade. Um, You know, charter schools come in all shapes and sizes, you know, cities, suburbs. You hear success stories about charter schools going into the neighborhood of a public school that's been failing for 30 years and doing better with the same kids, you know, better graduation rates, lower crime rates, lower teen pregnancy rates, just all the markers of success, doing better in places that... The public school system had just been failing for a long time and and so forth. And as a result, you get these lines going out the door, metaphorically speaking, for parents in these neighborhoods trying to get their kids into the charter schools and sometimes having waiting lists literally thousands or tens of thousands of kids long, tragically. On the other hand, you hear of charters that are no better than the public schools in their neighborhoods and charters that are even worse or that are employing policies that are harsh and too tough and kind of in other ways, unsavory. So all that to say, charter schools are, well, I guess we should, for people that are unaware, just what makes a charter school different from a public school and different from a private school? And from when's the opposition to public school, to 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 charter schools? Why are they so controversial?
1: Yeah. So first and foremost, charter schools are public schools. They're just a different type of public school. And usually they're managed by a nonprofit organization. So they receive public funding. They receive per pupil dollars. They've received general education funds, special education, title one, but they're managed privately. So that typically means that they're not unionized. Like I, in New York state, by the way, you can't even have, like, for example, a for-profit charter school. And you have very, very, very few charter schools that are managed by the teachers' unions. So there has become a perception that, first of all, that charter schools are not public schools. And so therefore, once you, <laughs> once you set up that incorrect framework, you automatically create an opposition between charters and public school, when in fact, public schools are, charters are within the public school infrastructure. They're like magnet schools or specialized high schools. So, you know, people talk about those without a sense that they're, you know, they are public schools too. They're just a different type. So that's first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Look, not every charter school is great. And by the way, not every traditional district school is bad, right? So to your point, there's some charter schools that should not be operating, that they haven't performed well. The big difference is that if there's a strong authorization system in that state, that charter school will be closed, or at least will have some remedial plan. Unfortunately, in some of these district schools where only 2% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, that's been going on for generations. And so one of the big differences, one of the big reasons that some people don't like charter schools is that there's a much higher level of accountability that exposes the traditional district system for its lack of accountability. So every year you've got to, you know, as a charter school leader, you have to produce a report that says, how did you do versus the academic goals and financial goals that were set? For the organization and by financial goals i mean effective management no mismanagement no misappropriation of funds and certainly every four to five years you have a full review teachers are interviewed your scholastic achievements are assessed you know if you run charter schools it's a serious deal you've got to put together a proposal probably five to six hundred pages about your idea what's the curriculum going to be what's your professional development going to be how are you going to maintain standards of excellence? You know, it's a serious thing. And the state then grants you the privilege of running a public charter school. So there's just a much greater degree of accountability. And when there is success that typically shows up to just no district school, that creates resentment, especially not only do they serve the same kids, they're usually within the same buildings. I mean, in New York City, There's, mm-hmm. I mean, I've had my schools, what's called co-located with other district schools. And, you know, teachers unions have taken a a huge opposition. I mean, I'm launching Vertex Partnership Academies an International Baccalaureate High School this August in another district in the Bronx, in District 12. In this district, only 7% of kids graduate from high school ready for college. This is gonna be a a world-class International Baccalaureate school. Students at the end of their sophomore year will be able to choose an International Baccalaureate diploma pathway or an international baccalaureate careers pathway there where they can major in computer science or healthcare and get a credential at the end of four years of high school. The unions are suing us for, in our view, a very frivolous reason because they know they're going to lose, but they want to muck up our operations, which they won't. We're going to open a great school for kids. We're going to fight it. But this is the level of opposition to the fundamental you know, that third E in free, a fundamental first rung of opportunity for kids. So, yes, I take all the points. Not all charter schools are good, but the big difference is they will be shut down, or they should be shut down if there's a good authorizer. So, there's a level of accountability, and we have control over our number one asset, which is our people. We have control over our curriculum. We have control over how much we pay our teachers. Like any good leader, you want to be able to control the levers that correlate to success and excellence. That's what we have in traditional charter schools that many traditional district schools do not. And look, I benefited. I went to New York City Public Schools K to 12. I'm a big champion of traditional district schools. And again, there's some schools that are great. And unfortunately, there are a number that are not so great. And charter schools offer parents the empowering alternative choice. And I'm going to fight for every parent that You know, regardless of whatever decisions they may have made in their own life, they want the best thing for their kid. Give them a shot at a great school. It's come on, man. It's just, you know, again, like at this very moment, we're being sued. So the the outrageousness of it is very frustrating, but we're just going to keep on pushing Mm -hmm. through because we're not going to give we're not going to back down against efforts that have nothing. To what, what's what's the, uh, what's the, I don't know if you want to at liberty to talk about it, but what's the lawsuit over? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So the way that, so in New York city, there is a cap on charter schools. So if you Coleman Hughes right now had a great idea to go to the South Bronx, you had a great idea for a school focused on music and, and um, mm-hmm. making correlations between math and all, all, you know, and, and the ways that music has been this force in our society. It's like, you just had a great idea you couldn't do it and you got educators you got experts because the union pretty much has ensured that there's no new charter schools can grow it's, it's a stranglehold you know meanwhile in 2019 in new york city the last year for which this data is available 81,000 families applied for charter schools to only 33 only 33,000 available seats right so it's nearly 50,000 families desperate for a great education and almost all Mm -hmm. low income, black and Hispanic. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a cap. But the only way charter schools can grow is if they extend grades within their existing charter. So for example, if you did get a charter for elementary, you would be allowed to run a school kindergarten through fifth grade. Right. And then at the, as you're approaching fifth grade, if you're doing well and you say, wait a minute, we don't want our kids to go into this abyss of the middle schools. Mm -hmm. We want us to, The state says, "Okay, we'll extend your existing charter from K to five to K to eight. And then similarly, at the high school level, if you don't want your kids to go into the abyss at the high school level, the state says you are now granted the authority to go from K to eight to K to 12. So that's exactly what we've done. There are these charter school networks, Public Prep and BRIA, that before had only ended at eighth grade. And Public Prep is a network I used to lead. I was CEO of. Now they're saying the state has given them the right to go from K to eight. K to 12. So they now have the authority to run a high school. They have many options for how that can be done. So they're hiring Vertex Partnership Academies, our charter management organization, to run their high school for grades nine through 12. That's it. So it's, it's, this is how high schools operate in New York City. The unions are saying that somehow, no, 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 this is a violation of the charter cap. It's not an extension. It's going to fall. It's, I mean. So is it is it because Vertex isn't technically public prep? Right. And that, that's actually the point. Vertex is not a mm-hmm. school. We're yeah. what's called a charter management organization. So we're I being see. hired by public prep and BRIA, this other network, to run their high school for them, for which they have the legitimate rights to run a high school.
0: So the union opposition to charters in general, I mean, this is the teacher's union. This is because charters aren't bound by... Union contracts and union negotiations Correct. you your teachers are not union teachers Correct. you can fire them more easily if they're incompetent right and, and on the positive side that's threatening right. to the teacher right but on the
1: positive side we can also incentivize them um, and compensate them and create an incredible you know professional learning environment but yes we can hire and fire with much more great much more freedom than you can within a traditional district school yeah and that and that's threatening. For the same reason that, you know, union construction
0: workers are threatened by yeah. non-union workers, basically. It's, it's just professional
1: self-interest, basically, or incumbent self-interest, you could say. Yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, it's, it's frustrating because, um, look, I feel for every teacher who, you know, feels that they're in an environment where they don't feel they have either protections or they want to do a good mm-hmm. job. But the conditions under which we are now operating, the need is so massive for great schools. There should be zero opposition, zero, mm. to ideas that bring great schools into communities in which only 7% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. It's madness, madness. It's as if a building has been on fire
0: for decades and there have been massive scholarly and culture wars over how to put the fire out. And then some someone comes up with this new idea and In a third of cases, it puts the fire out, right? It's not perfect by any means, but it's like for 50 years, we've been looking for anything at all to put the fire out. And in a third of cases, it puts the fire out. And the party, again, most of charter opposition, as I understand it, comes from Democrats. The party that styles itself as the party that cares the
1: most about putting fires out opposes it. It's absolutely insane. It used to be that charter schools really enjoyed bipartisan support, that both Democrats and Republicans said, you know what, we're going to agree to disagree on everything else, immigration, prison reform, whatever. We're going to park our disagreements because when it comes to school choice, we can be down with this. I think what's happened, particularly since George Floyd and probably Michael Brown, particularly all the issues around race, that agreement to disagree has fallen by the wayside. And so now, yeah, generally teachers unions in the Democratic Party usually play an oppositional role. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I I mean, what's ironic is if you were to poll all the families in our schools, the vast majority of them probably are more progressive Democrats. Right. They're more socially conservative, but politically mm-hmm. they're probably more Democrats. And, you know, I think that's why you're seeing, you know, elections, whether it be DeSantis being winning that governor election a few years ago, his margin of victory was very much driven by his position on school choice, that he was supportive of it, where his Black opponent, Andrew Gillum, did not support school choice or Governor Yunkin, Virginia. So I think education will likely become the issue that more and more parents realize, wait a minute, you're cutting off the one thing that is the, mm-hmm. the, there seems to be an answer that works, mm-hmm. especially in low-income communities. And you're shutting me off. So yeah, so that's what we're fighting here in New York. But you know what? We're going to fight it and we're going to win. And, and we're going to demonstrate that we can bring a world-class school into a community that desperately wants it, needs it, and deserves it, you know? And again, this is an example of free where you can't say blame the victim. Like, let's say, for example, this union won- Let's say the union wins the suit. That means the kids who are going to high school in this district are going to schools where only where 93% of the kids have either dropped out or can't read and do math at college levels they do. So when you say blame, when someone says blame the victim, you can't just walk away from that and feel that you're making a legitimate accusation when you're not giving kids a real shot.
0: Yeah. See, there's one other thing on charter schools I wanted to ask you. I remember this probably was a year or two ago, I'm not sure, but there was, you may remember this story. There was a prominent woman, maybe she was in the Democratic Party or or something else, who either had written a book or an article attacking charter schools and seemingly defending public schools against the alleged threat that charters represent to funding and rest. But it was discovered that she sent her (laughs) own kids to private school or to catholic school Correct. or something. I don't do, do you remember the specific I of this actually story don't remember the speci- this one? I
1: don't remember the specifics of this story, but unfortunately that storyline is not unique at all. Many right. many many of the people who attack charter schools and choice more broadly exercise mm. it with a great degree within their own lives. Their own many lives elected their own, officials right. for example send their kids to private schools, religious schools mm or they move to suburbs where they can still be an elected official, but but be able to send their kids to decent public schools. They're exercising choice. The hypocrisy is dripping. It is dripping. And so I don't remember that exact story, but unfortunately, you know, it's, it's like Nicole Hannah-Jones. You know, none of these things will overcome 400 years of racialized plundering. Wink, wink. I've done all four of those things. But, you know, (laughs) but but don't mind me. But don't worry, they're not they're not that important. Yeah. And again, good for her. (laughs) She's recognized the institutions that really matter. Let's not hide the ball. You know, let's not let's not hide the ball from everybody else. So that's the hypocrisy. And, you know, here's the other thing. We need the courage to say these things out loud. I mean, maybe one thing we haven't talked about is part of the reason that all this opposition is allowed to continue is because there's so few people who are willing to stand up and take the blows, frankly, of getting the pushback when you do say, wait a minute, hold on. I mean, yeah, racism exists, but family structure, school choice, these things really matter. But if you're going to back down because you're going to be called a racist or if on gender issues, you're going to be called a transphobe. So part, part of what I'm also trying to do in my book, Agency, is inspire adults to get the backbone to respond when the so-called elites are attacking you for saying obvious things about what is needed for kids to flourish.
0: Mm. Yeah. So another question I have, and this relates directly to the blaming the system versus blaming the victim and to charters as well, which is where's the line between showing mercy and lowering standards? So you've you mentioned things in your book, which is like, what happens when a parent shows up late to drop off their kid, you know, multiple days in a row and it's, it's becoming a pattern um, or, or a kid is, is not doing so well, even though they were doing well last term and you suspect something's going on at home. Where's the line between showing mercy and allowing someone to skirt the rules in a particular case and just holding the line for the rules and with the hope that they will come up to the bar that
1: you've you've established. Wow. Well, when you say showing mercy, that I associate with, like, you know, we're subjecting someone to like this unrelenting, vicious, harmful set of expectations. I mean, my answer may not satisfy you, but I almost see no scenario in which the answer Mm. should be lowering your standards. Because at the end of the day, you're doing your kids no favors if that's the direction for which, and I see it all the time. I mean, in San Diego, I write about this in the book, you know, because these black kids can't succeed, we're going to remove the requirement to submit homework on time. Like, wait, what? Mm. I mean, the kids love it, you know? (laughs) But, you know, you think, When you go to college or you go to your employer, oh, yeah, boss, well, yeah, I'll get to that next week. You know, that assignment that you gave me, I'll just, I'll get it to you when I get it to you. And maybe this gets into the whole equity versus equality thing. There's a difference between showing mercy and providing the kinds of differentiated supports that a kid may need to reach the same high standard that you're expecting of everyone else. And that's a really important distinction. So, you know, like showing mercy means that you're kind of taking your foot off the pedal, right? And it's not that you want to be harmful or harsh, but you want to know like what's holding a kid back. And you try to solve the problem. I mean, and that could range. I mean, in our school, you know, in the South Bronx, one of the biggest reasons kids miss school is because of asthma on the part of their parents, right? They're like, wait, what? Mm. Yeah, and it turns out, I mean, a lot of low-income housing, there's asbestos, there's infestation, there are all these things. And so we built a partnership with an asthma reduction organization that was able to represent parents and, you know, lawsuits that they, um, they're they trying to get their landlords to clean the house, you know, and, you know, and then you get these devices that the kids could use to manage their asthma if that was the issue. So we tried to solve the problem, not by us taking on asthma, but getting a partner organization to address the issue. So one could have said, "They're not coming to school. Just let them. Just, just don't count the absences, right?" One could have said, "Well, yeah, but you know, this, their parents are having these issues. And the parents are sick. They can't bring them to school, especially in the elementary grades. Let's just let it go. Maybe it'll be better a few years from now." No, <laughs> you know, like how can we be creative on how to solve these problems? I mean, I mean, this is a kind of a crazy story. So I ran for school board in my own hometown because I started to see some of this, says so a lot of this sort of woke ideology starting to infiltrate my own school. And a couple of months ago, we had the Olympics where all the kids are playing these great games and everyone wins a medal, you know, gold, medal, silver. And uh, it's really wonderful and take photos, blah, blah, blah. And a few days later at our board meeting, a parent gets up and says, you know, I, um, it was such a wonderful day, but my, you know, my, my kid, felt really bad. You know, he didn't win a medal. Can we make it so that everyone gets a medal? No, everyone can't get a medal. No, no. We just, so it's not, it's not the sort of no mercy thing. It's expectations actually matter Mm. and not hitting expectations also matters because you learn something about what you did not do to make you better the next time. And mm-hmm. so, so it's an interesting question you ask, like no mercy versus holding standards. We do our kids no favors when we say to them, it's all right. You know, this time you don't have to hit it because A, that becomes a pattern and B, it's, you know, it's a soft bigotry of low expectations, all that stuff, but it's kind of real. And so I, um, it's not that you don't show mercy. It's that you be creative about how to support kids so that they can meet the expectations.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me share a story about this too. I think, so K through five, I went to the public school in my town. I was effortlessly at the top of every class. Everything was easy. And I saw other kids struggling with math and with, and I would do my homework in five minutes, get everything right. And then go, you know, play basketball, play soccer, play Pokemon, whatever I was doing when I was nine years old, 10 years old. Then as I described at the beginning of this podcast, my mom sent me to a you know, somewhat against my will to a private school where this standard was just way higher, right? Like everything was harder. I was, I suddenly had to put in effort, like real effort. And there was this transition period where it was incredibly difficult for me, right? Like the number of hours I had, I went from 10 minutes of homework a night to like two hours of homework a night in a single year from fifth to sixth grade. And not only the quantity of time, but the quality of the homework was much harder, right? I really had to try. I had to expend mental effort on every minute of the homework in order to get full marks. And I remember there was one night towards the beginning of my time at this new school where I just broke down in tears. Mm-hmm. I broke down in tears doing my homework because it was—it felt, I it just I had had no precedent for what it's actually like to put in effort. It was shocking. It was shocking to me. And I broke down and crying. And I remember my mother held me and she said, we're going to get, we're going to get through it. And after a few months, a few months from that time, I had fully made the transition into seeing what it's like to put in effort. And once again, I was at the top of my class at this new school. And I stayed at the top of that class and got straight A's and eventually awards for being at the top of the class at this new school where this, the bar had now risen and I had, I had gone up to it. So to me, that's a that's just one of a million examples of, of stories that people have in their lives where they had no idea mm. how good they could get at something wow. if they had never been pressure tested somewhat painfully, right? People have this experience with atl- athletics quite often. It's like if you didn't have that coach that made you yep. cry because of how many suicides he made you do on the basketball court, yep. you would never have realized how good a team yep you could have been. And people are, I think most individuals are naturally a little bit lazy. Like we don't, humans, we're not like, if we don't have to do something to survive, we like to just hang around and like chill. But I share that. I think this is the crux of what you were saying with showing mercy versus lowering the bar, which is that in many cases, people have no idea how high they can fly if they're not really forced to do that. Like the, really the fire isn't lit under them with the the threat of consequences frankly and it, the consequence could be failing a class having to repeat a grade anything but it has to be real yes and when it's real people end up i would have had no idea how how the level of intellectual work i was capable of had i stayed mm-hmm. at a school where just everything was so yep. effortless and easy for i me. mean this
1: is also what makes the blame the system ideology so satisfying for so many people because it takes the pressure off you right you don't have to work as hard in the same way because, A, you know, quote, meritocracy is an illusion or it doesn't matter anyway because somehow the system is rigged. So there's a reason these ideologies, you know, promulgate so much. And um, we as the adults actually have to fight back and say, look, you have to work harder because of the barriers, not that you're gonna to succumb to them so we're gonna let you off the hook, you know? And um mm-hmm. but you know, in my view, there are a lot of educators say that we're in a reckoning. We have to reach educators who understand what you just said, which is that what it may seem as initial opposition or that initially you're pressing kids too hard, but over time actually becomes that life lesson that has made all the difference for the kids you want to serve. And you know, in many ways that's why i agency, it's so easy right now. To lean towards a view of kids as just being these pressed, marginalized, victimized kids, where if we expect too much of them, we will traumatize them. We will set them back. We're doing a real disservice to our children. Agency is an empowering alternative that I'm trying to put forth.
0: Okay, so final question here. So you have this this acronym FREE, Family, Religion, Education, and, and Entrepreneurship, and I guess a few things strike me about it. One is that basically is the formula that most immigrant groups from poor countries who come here end up succeeding follow. They're usually they're usually religious. They're almost always have a tight knit family structure and also a tight extended family structure actually. And they generally prioritize education and entrepreneurship. And that's the first observation I have. The the second observation I have is that you know, religion has played very little role in my life and in my story and in the story of my family, frankly. And I'm curious, your choice to include religion, what does that come from? And what role do you see religion playing in this path you want to carve out of the harmful, blame the system
1: narrative and blame the victim narrative? I mean, I'd love to dig into your personal story when you say religion has not played a role. You know, I'd I'd be curious Mm -hmm. where you think To the degree that you or your family have lived by a moral code, where did that come from? So I'd I'd be curious at some point to have that discussion with you. I mean, the reason I put it in my framework, you know, it's really interesting. When I started writing this book, the word agency was not the title. It was only going to be about family structure. And I realized that family is obviously crucial and sort of the wellspring of almost everything else. But if agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, where are the places that a moral code comes from? And even though it unfortunately has been corrupted and in many places in our society, faith is kind of, you know, the the fastest growing category amongst young people as it relates to religious commitment or religious affiliation is none. right. They're called the nuns. But The data is overwhelming that shows that if you have a personal faith commitment, much lower levels of loneliness, much lower levels of depression, much more real world interaction with people that love you. You're part of rituals that occur regularly and that you're just there's a warmer embrace. There's a new book, um, God Breeds and Graduation, I think, that shows that there's good data that shows you get better academic outcomes. So none of my elements of free are prescriptive in the sense that you must do this, otherwise you won't have a successful life. It's descriptive, meaning I try to provide data that says, well, if you embrace these pillars, this is the more likely set of outcomes in your life. And in the, in the category of faith, there's no question about it. Based on the data alone, you're much more likely to meet your mate. You're much more likely to stay married. You're much, like, much less likely to get divorced. That's just data. And what I'm trying to do is help adults and then by extension, young people make more informed decisions about their life. You know, I can't say, I mean, my parents were religious. They were Seventh-day Adventists. and You know, so we generally grew up in the church, not It wasn't like for me growing up, that was a necessary part of my life. But now that I have children, it's become much more important. And so whether it's a moral code generated by a true religious faith commitment in Christianity or Buddhism or something else, or it's a code of right and wrong that maybe is not explicitly religious per se, but has come from a place of, yeah, what is morally right or wrong? That's what I'm talking about. And, yeah. and I feel like too many kids are growing up absent that kind of framework. Mm.
0: I think that's right. I mean, uh, could you make sense of the insane meteoric rise of someone like Jordan Peterson? Right. Like Jordan Peterson... He basically comes along in you know 2016 or 2017 and gives lectures about the Bible and about Carl Jung and Jungian archetypes and how and why to forego short-term pleasures in pursuit of long-term values, acting in accordance with purpose. So you know the good parts of every religion, basically. Right. And like overnight, has just millions of people. You know, the caricature of his audience is just male, but but it's actually you know men and women although probably skews male, you know, people my age and younger going to his lectures in droves because of how hungry they are to hear someone give them that message in a way that they can understand and apply in their own lives. And what that suggests to me, what that suggests to me is that there is a vacuum created when religion goes away and that in the absence of religion, the natural instinct is just to pursue pleasure right? Like to pursue short-term pleasure, if you're not given strong reasons why you should forego it in the pursuit of long-term goals. And I'm not sure it was necessary in my case because everyone around me, I was so steeped in a culture of long-termism and getting married. And So what's your rea- reality if most of the people around you are living by the short-term, right? Yeah. And religion has lost relevance. It's very hard. So it, it's very hard. It's very hard. Willpower, individual willpower, is often not enough, and so I do really see the value of having a, a religious narrative telling you why you should save your dollars for a rainy day and you know forego the short-term pleasures of the flesh. Whatever it is, all of that stuff is is very hard to do on your own unless everyone around you is
1: also doing it, and it's a key component yep. to the success sequence. Yeah, and in in fact. When I used to talk about the success sequence, which was, you know, education, work, marriage, and children, I started to realize it was solely an economic formula. It didn't include a moral component. It didn't include faith. And that's when I started to realize I needed to be more explicit about that. You know, so I decided to take on not only the third rail of marriage and, you know, out-of-wedlock birth rates, but also religion. I mean, you, you said just at the beginning, like, free is a framework, you know, very synonymous with, like, the immigrant story, which it is. But One thing I'm trying to do is to show that these are just behaviors that are accessible Mm. to anyone. So while it is true Mm -hmm. that the immigrant story, I mean, you you know, Nigerian Americans are, you know, some of the highest earning um, people in the United States, which, you know, certainly conflicts with this idea of systemic racism being so oppressive that a black person can't succeed. but. There are a lot of Black people that have embraced, they don't need Ian Rowe to write a book to tell them that family, religion, education, entrepreneurship matter, you know? And so how do we get more people to realize these behaviors are free to everyone? They're accessible. Like no one has to be shut off from this, you have an epic life within your grasp. That's what I want my students to know. It's possible. You don't have to do it alone. There are institutions that can love you and support you and bring you along. You've got to play a role in it too. But indi- agency is individually practiced and socially empowered. And um, mm-hmm. religion is one component of that. There's some people that are really terrified to talk about faith and religion because of the corruption in the church and all that. And I get it, but that shouldn't undermine power of what can be achieved in your life if you embrace that as one element. And I thought it was important to talk about.
0: All right, Ian, we've reached the end of our conversation. This has been great, really good for me. I hope listeners enjoyed it. And if they did, they can pick up your book, which is called Agency. And in the meantime, can you direct my listeners who want to support what you're doing with the vertex management of charter schools or with charter schools in general? Uh, Can you direct them in any ways to learn
1: more or support you? Oh, well, thank you for that. And, um, I mean, the greatest thing you can do to support me is to first start within your own local, your own locality. And what do the elements of free mean within your own life? The family that you form, faith commitment, education, what do those things mean? And just hopefully the book, um, if you pick it up, it has an opportunity for you to reflect on what these could mean in your own life and that of your own children or young people that you interact with. That's how I try to think about things. How do I start in my own community? That's why I've ran for school board. That's why I run schools, you know, in communities close to me. So start small, start local. And because um, I feel like ultimately that's how we as a country are going to shift in these times that all of us recognize that we have our own power with our own local communities. As far as supporting Vertex, that would be fantastic. Vertexacademies.org, V-E-R-T-E-X-A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-S.org. We are a nonprofit organization and we're we're building schools, and you know the beautiful thing is ultimately our schools are sustainable on public dollars, which is the beautiful thing about public charter schools—that you have some philanthropy at the beginning, but then over time, this is a public good running on, mm-hmm. you know, in a public annuity at a cost that's lower than the traditional district school. So it's a it's a very powerful and replicable model of high quality educational development. So if folks want to support—that would be amazing, but. The most important thing, have courage to speak obvious truths about what we know works for kids. The thing that we have lacking in our country, in my view today, is just this fear of speaking the truth. We've allowed ideologies to persist that are just not true. Blame the system, blame the victim. There are elements of truth in these things, but overall, they add up to a lie that hurts our kids have courage to speak the truth for your own children and the children that are distant from you, but deserve an opportunity in this great country. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Coleman. It was great. Thank you. If you appreciate
0: the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always,
1: thanks for your support.